Welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast in association with Rehab My Patient and this is session 76. Hello, welcome back to the Physio Matters podcast. Thank you for sticking with us to the 76th episode. Just a little bit of feedback from my introduction on the last episode. I've received a disappointing number of diamond-related gifts through the post to Choose Health HQ. But never mind. We have an absolutely brilliant podcast with you uh, for you this month, and um, I'll get on to that in a second. I Hopefully you have checked out the opioid podcast, Health Matters number five, that we put out a couple of weeks ago with Helen Nadell. Absolutely brilliant podcast. Learn loads and loads from that. Super useful if you're working with any patient who may well be taking opioid medication. So much information in there. Definitely a couple of listens needed. Once again, thank you to Rehab My Patient for sponsoring this episode. A perfectly timed episode in with regards to isolation and the older person being isolated as well for significant periods of time. Their software is the ideal solution to be getting them varied and interesting exercise programs that are easy to follow. So head over to the Rehab My Patient website and check their product out. It is excellent. We do find on this podcast, we record a show where we think, man, we really need to record more podcasts on this topic. We need to expand out. And this is one of them. Thank you so much to Scott Buxton for agreeing to come on the show, spending his time coming to the clinic and sharing his knowledge with us on frailty. You will learn absolutely loads from this podcast. I certainly did, not only on screening and management of the older person, but also on the types of conditions we might be seeing related to frailty, how we can manage that and how we can be much better with this group of patients who are in dire need. As I record this, it is the 18th of March and we are just starting this significant social isolation. And I think that if anything proves that this topic is necessary, then the problems we are having with the COVID-19 virus absolutely uh, means that we need to know more about managing older people and their conditions and how to keep them more active and more independent. Because situations like this, although extreme, prove to us that they need to be able to cope with things that are thrown at them. Otherwise, they're going to get significant problems. And that is not what we want for anybody. So listen away. I'll be back to you at the end of the episode and hopefully you enjoy. Delighted to be here today with Scott Buxton, a man that I got on the hook for a podcast, having shared the stage with him at Physio UK 2019, talking uh, about another of our favourite topics, uh, digital CPD, uh, amongst a symposium run by Physio Talk, which was really good, really, really seemed popular. We've, I think we've both had some great feedback about it. But what I did is uh, soon afterwards, I got him on the hook for this podcast on frailty. And I know, having spoken to Scott from meeting him a couple of years prior through Physiopedia, that his interest and his expertise as an ESP, APP, into older people and frailty is something that is so, so undervalued, so underutilized, and something that is so important when we all kind of, as a talking point, refer to an aging population and recognize that. And so we need to upskill everyone, namely MSK community, to make sure they understand the nuances of that client set shall we say and so to get scott agreeing to that 
<laughs> on, on stage, admittedly, um, was something that I was delighted for. So I'm really pleased to have him on the on the show. Without me waffling too much further into an introduction about him and his background, I'll just introduce you, Scott, to introduce yourself. But thanks so much for coming. No, thank you very much for having me. And I'm really excited to talk about something um, I'm really passionate about and something you're right that sometimes is undervalued or or wrapped up in in a, a sweeping statement of just old people, when actually it can be a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. Um, so I'm fortunate to be part of a, a couple of teams in my career. One is Physiopedia, like we've spoken about, which I've been doing my whole career, um, which is really good. Um, really exposes me to a lot of opportunities and meeting you, of course. Um, but also my day job in Bath at the Royal United Hospital, um, where I'm the, the the therapy lead for the frailty team, but also work in advanced practice in the emergency department um, as part of a really experienced, highly skilled uh, multidisciplinary team, um, including geriatricians and occupational therapists and um, specialist nurses. Um, and really fortunate to learn from them, um, even though I've been working with older people probably for seven or eight years now. Um, still quite early compared to them. Um, so getting exposed to their expertise and, and just learning and, and growing from them has been really fortunate for me. Sure. And because Bath is, um, probably, uh, white, middle-class affluent, lots of people retire there. Sure. We've got quite an, an, an aged population, quite a frail population, mm-hmm. um, which, which has exposed me to probably some, um, experience and opportunity, which might not be available at other places. Right. Okay. Well, how did it come about then in terms of a typical career journey then, if we can do that whistle stop? Yeah. Uh, I always thought I was going to be a musculoskeletal physio. I I really enjoy musculoskeletal practice. I really, really care about exercise and um, giving people that quality of life, which is in essence what working in in frailty and geriatric uh, medicine and physiotherapy is really. It's about quality of life, maximizing someone's independence and human performance. Yeah. and I just did band five rotation. So I did, um, before I got to Bath, I worked in neuro and a little bit of general rehab. And then I moved to Bath and uh, worked in MSK as my first rotation there. I really enjoyed it. And then I went to do falls and balance um, outpatients and movement disorder clinic, right. which is essentially outpatients for all people. Sure. So I got, got that general MSK experience. And then I kind of took it to the next level with how that applies to all people, um, particularly falls and balance and Parkinson's disease, really. Right. Um, but I really fell in love with the complexity of it. I got a little bit bored with the ankle sprains, the back pain, not yeah. having the right opportunity, the right time, enough okay. time in the sessions to delve into things I really cared about. Okay. Um, and I got to do that at falls and balance. You know, the, the sessions are longer. You, you, it's a, bit more complicated from the outset it's Mm. not necessarily straightforward um and i really enjoyed that um and then i just carried on doing some rotations general old people's ward came up um and then there's an opportunity to do some service development work um at bath i'm really fortunate to have been a part of it where we started this frailty team so the the frailty team is called the frailty flying squad didn't come up with the name can't take um any (laughs) any credit or complaints about that but (laughs) um yeah, uh, and what we do is we we see uh, older people when they come into the emergency department, we either reduce their length of stay as much as possible or prevent their admission entirely. Right. But we see them together, shared decision-making, shared assessments and uh, diagnostic reasoning, really. Um, um, I'm fortunate to prescribe, so I get to take part in that process of yeah. ordering scans, investigations, interpreting the results, and then um, starting that initial treatment and then follow up 24, 48 hours later. 
That, that reminds me of something I was thinking about when you mentioned complexity, because we talk about complexity of pain, and rightly so, many times on this podcast, and in MSK practice has its complexity because of the nature of complexity of humans. But when it comes to older people, there's the social complexity that often comes, but also the medical complexity, which are both ramped up because of yeah. the demographic. And I think that that's one of the things that it's... Uh, for me, in some ways, such a shame to lose such talent from an MSK-specific community, but also we can hopefully leverage your now more, more I won't say narrow, but more specialised skill set mm. into MSK where we know it's translatable. Mm. But generally, when it comes to, I think we, and, and I say similarly with some sets of, of neuro, is that the complexities of, well, some one of the mistakes people make about the complexities, if it all has to then be slow stream, Whereas actually in the client set that you're talking about can have some incredibly rewarding, life-changing wins, mm. especially yeah. when it comes to sort of neurovestibular stuff mm. and, and trying to make sure that you, or especially with the medical overlay, that if, you, if you're yeah. accurate and responsive with diagnostics, it's amazing the steps that can be made mm. when people associate it as being like slow stream rehab only. Yeah. It's part yeah. of it, but it's not only. And so I know from previous chats we've had off air that that's something that um, it sounds like that hooked you. And mm. I'm, I'm glad it has because yeah. hopefully we can then translate that yeah. across more broadly. So no, that's uh, that's brilliant. I want to make sure that we we go broad before we zoom in, mm. and and especially around this world word sorry word frailty. Can we sort of try and define it and Talk a bit about that in terms of it. It sounds like it's something that you use in your department um, and, and what it means to, to different people as well. So let's start with something so broad as to say, what is frailty? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think if, if I was to sum up frailty in a word, it would be bounce back ability. So it's that, <laughs> yeah, it's that lack of being able to adapt to a new stressor. So the actual, the, the definitive description is somewhat debated about what the succinct phrase would be um but in essence it's not the same as aging it's associated with aging but it's a completely separate clinical entity that's to do with multi-system failure that means that you can't adapt to any new stresses so it puts you at more more risk of harm events so take um Take a, a small chest infection, for example. If you have a frail older person, it means that they won't be able to continue with their independence in their life. Um, and I would die for sometimes it's easier to see it in, in a graph or a, a pictorial form. Um, and there's a famous graph by Clegg um, uh, from probably, I don't know, a decade ago, maybe. It's got a really succinct graph where on the, on the X axis is time and on the Y axis is independence. And it's split in the middle where you have um, above the line is independence, below the line is dependence. Mm. And you've got someone who's kind of plodding along quite nicely um, in, in their independent state. They get a, a chest infection and they drop down into dependence, really short, sharp deterioration in their in their physical abilities. And then that, that recovers over time, but not quite as it to the state they were in before. Um, and that's kind of what that lack of inbuilt reserve means. You can't overcome small stresses, but also you can't fully recover to where you were before. Yeah. Um, and it, it looks different for everyone. So there's no such thing as just one person's frailty is the same as the next. It all depends on their environment, their what is predominantly leading to their frailty. And that kind of leads to the the two main schools of thought about what frailty is and, and how you get at the two theories. Um, and they probably have been around since the early 2000s. 
Um, before that, people knew that, that this was a thing, but they didn't know what to call it. There wasn't the research to back it sure. up. Um, so there's two schools of thought. You've got the um, accumulative deficits, which is kind of like the Ken Rockwood school of thought, the, the clinical frailty index and frailty scoring, um, which is uh, if you think of a Jenga tower, and each on each brick you've got another disease written on it. Yeah. And every time you get one, you take a block the out. The accumulation of, yeah. of, of pathology. Absolutely. And then eventually you take one out and the whole thing comes down. Yeah. And that's when you've got to slowly try and build it back up again. But you can't get all the blocks back in. Sure. Um, and that's what the um, the clinical frailty index is. That's what the, the clinical frailty scoring is. But the accumulation of deficits is that mm. um, school of thought. And then you've got freed with her phenotype model which is what someone physically looks like um which as a physio i really like this model because it involves a lot of measurements of things that we love so <laughs> walking speed um grip strength uh lack of uh eating and drinking a lack of physical expenditure um and then weight loss that goes with that um and they you can use both of them there's, there's nothing wrong with it um but in a clinical setting, they both have different strengths and weaknesses. Um, and they, 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 uh, Freed's model particularly leads to something which I really care about, which is this state of pre-frailty. Right. So this state of when you're about to tip into frailty, there's an opportunity, there's a window there to do something about it. Mm. Um, and Freed's model really lends that because in the model, it specifically says if you have one of these five things, um, they all add up to a score of one. So if you have one, it's a score of one. If you don't, it's a score of zero. Yeah. So zero is fit and well. One and two are pre-frail. Three or more is frail. Mm. So there's an opportunity if you have one or two of these things for you to do something about it. It very much directs you to it. Um, so if you have slow walking speed, we need to do something about your walking speed to stop you from becoming frail because you're going to progress and score another score eventually. Um, if you're not eating and drinking enough, we can do something about that. Mm. If your grip strength isn't enough as a sign of your overall muscle mass rather than your actual grip strength, if there's a, a problem with your grip strength, then obviously that doesn't, it's not valid for that sure. person. I think when I, when I hear those models laid out, um, and, and it's one of those things that I sort of feel like I know of, but necessarily haven't. Uh, as not a specialist in that area, then understood certainly the research models or the schools of thought as you've described them, but it sort of maps onto the medical meets therapy yeah. or also uh, biomedical meets biopsychosocial, certainly more holistic or outcome approach, whereas there is a bit of labeling that goes on naturally, it sounds like, with the Jenga stack. Mm. But then similarly, of course, because of the, the sort of it being a medical, um, a more medical field than, say, ankle sprains in, in, in Jung. Um, means that there's going to be occasions where we do need to recognise that there probably might be a narrow pharmacological intervention mm. or, or diagnostic uh, mm. that needs to be required where that model might be appropriate. Yeah. So naturally, synergy, I imagine, is where you, you find yourself. But also, when it comes to rehab, yeah, I'd be, a, yeah. I imagine, a, a fan of that. Freed, mm. Would you say Freed, sorry? Holistic yeah. Model. So I like, I, like the, I like the sound of those. One of the things that I, admittedly, when I was even prepping this podcast frailty was something that i was reassured to to delve into some of the literature on it in prep to find it being an appropriately medical term because to some extent i almost thought it was like an unpc uh, term like even sort of people calling people jerry's instead of geriatrics yeah. it became like a petty playground mm -hmm. slur and i thought frail maybe might be in that category fortunately it's not because i think it has great utility um but 
Is there a risk? To, 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 do you have sometimes patients that don't identify or don't want that associated with them? And, and do you have to nuance that conversation? Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, there's there's a massive debate at the moment about whether it should be appropriately called frailty or not. Okay. The same as geriatrics. It should yeah. be what? It, it, should it be uh, older people? Should it be uh, aged? Should it be something more positive instead of labelling them as something negative? And that's very much what. Um, uh, the the thoughts at the moment is we should have an asset based approach right. to people when they get older. What can they do instead of what can't they do? Sure. Yeah. So walking less than one meter per second, for example, would say you're probably frail. Mm-hmm. But should we be saying okay, they can walk six six meters in six seconds? Mm-hmm. What can we do to progress that instead of what can we do to stop that from deteriorating? Mm. It's a very different approach and mindset from the from the get go. Um, and I, I get why patients would much rather think of what they can do instead of what they can't do. Sure. But we do focus on a problem list because that's what you do when you assess someone's frailty. Yeah. You come up with a problem list instead of an asset list. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there is debate about it. I think if we, if like in anything, if we can appropriately recognise the individual and, and make sure that they feel felt and then they're not being just tick boxed you know there's mm. not a clipboard between you every time you yeah. see them and stuff then you can imagine that they would understand that this is a totting of do, you know, things they can and things they can't do and, and, and that is naturally representative of them you know we don't all carry around all of our assets we carry around our baggage too and, mm. and older people are probably going to be worldly wise to that and probably not especially always precious about it and it'd be to condescend them if we didn't think that they could understand that sometimes they do fall into what we need as categories medically but when it comes to semantics and words I'm not surprised mm. that that's one that uh, I'm glad my instincts were right because yeah. you could have easily have said to me that's really a established and uncontroversial medical term but i sort of suspected not and uh, it's interesting that that's the case and uh, i don't know where that'll go but it's definitely one that we need to probably be mindful of because it's sort of thing where none of us want to derail a clinical consultation by by using uh, dated terminology or not appropriately nuancing it or if it was to be found on someone's notes when they didn't realize that that was a term as if it was being used as a slur rather than as a diagnosis then of course they'd be mortified so we need to be mindful of that i imagine what are the therapist's roles in recognition and how does it affect your clinical practice, particularly in and around sort of older people and frailty? And mm. any distinctions from that to assessment and diagnostics with regards to MSK, say, which of course you know is the majority of our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think so. Identifying whether someone is frail or not is, is important for a, for a number of reasons, but primarily because they're more vulnerable um, and they're probably going to take a little bit longer to recover. But the when someone's frail it should trigger a process of events that happen and one of those is called the comprehensive geriatric assessment or cga it's very much a process it's not a one-off assessment it's something which needs a lot of work over a a number of hours days or weeks depending on what setting you work in Um, obviously it's in a day hospital you'll be in a setting with geriatricians occupational therapists etc etc same for community hospitals they Mm. tend to have lots of mdt members around but if you're in if you're in uh, an outpatient setting for example and and someone comes in and you think oh they they look frail maybe i'll just have a look at how quickly they're walking into the the clinic room and you go "Mm, a bit bit slow they've got these vague symptoms i'm not sure what's going on it should be a trigger to say okay maybe i should write to the gp and say i think this person needs to be seen by uh the mdt by a a geriatrician by a specialist physio or ot or 
they should be seen by a geriatric team in essence. Right, right. Um, and that's very much the cutoff. Um, and in, in the accumulative deficit model um, with uh, Ken Rockwood with the clinical frailty scale, um, it's very much a score of five out of nine means definitively this person will benefit from having a comprehensive geriatric assessment. And that means the re- well, the research shows that they will have less cause um, of mortality, less risk of death, and they will be more independent after any health event was to happen. Right. Um, and that's why it's important that we start the process as soon as you recognise someone's frail yeah. um, and creating that problem list and, and working together with them to improve their, their, their problems or their, what's causing their lack of independence. So that early intervention that I'm describing obviously comes from a really compassionate place, but it's also fraught with difficulties where people can bob above that line you know you 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 drew it out visually really nicely with regards to what that graph might look like but people do sort of bob along on it and then sometimes don't feel as vulnerable as they perhaps are Mm. when we look at things more objectively and so it's almost that most people are more understanding of what seem like radical interventions or onerous appointment sets when they have a crisis event in which they feel particularly vulnerable or frail in their perception of what frail would be. But when you're trying to detect it and act on it before it worsens, mm-hmm. does that necessarily, you know, is that sometimes a, you have to negotiate and persuade patients and families in that direction? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. Yeah. If they don't have necessarily have insight into what their problems are or, or if they've got a really good support network, they're not going to necessarily need something right now, but it's those people who come in and you go, Oh, I don't know. I've got a feeling that you're not quite coping. Oh, I don't know how good your support network is. That's why we ask those questions because they can quickly deteriorate. Um, if they don't have a good support network or family or, or someone looking in for them. And, and sometimes they will present at physio before they've had an opportunity to, to see anyone else about it because they have vague symptoms a lot of the time that are masked by their frailty um, and they'll get referred to physio because it's normally something like not walking around as well as they used to or yeah we see that falling down falls and failure to recover from flu and it's a it's a sort of a generic low limb oa yeah referral where people are just saying like and they're still sometimes able especially with transport to get into an outpatient clinic or with family Mm. where fundamentally the story is upstream medical Mm. and in this case frail yeah uh, frailty related if if someone's got if someone's quite severely frail and they're not just moderately frail, they're more likely to present in the emergency department because they've completely fallen off their perch from a minor event but if they're mildly frail or pre-frail they're more likely to present to an outpatient setting Um, and that's why it's really important to be aware of when someone's going to start to deteriorate and that's why the scoring is really important. So what's your take on awareness then? Do you think it's something we're, we're good at improving at? Uh, I think I think uh, as a whole, we're at a stage where we know how to score it, but we're not necessarily good at dealing with it. Okay. Um, and that does not just necessarily from a physio point of view, but also from a medical point of view or from a mental health point of view or from a third sector support point of view. Yeah. We're not quite there. A lot of that has to do with policy, um, funding for um, community services, um, not having enough time to see these patients because to do a, a comprehensive geriatric assessment with an MDT, it can take anywhere up to two, two and a half hours. It's a, quite a massive yeah, yeah, yeah. undertaking and we don't always have time to do that in, in great detail in half hour settings or or um, in one one appointment, which is why it's really difficult to do something about it quickly. Um, but 
yeah, the recognition's there. It's there's also debate about whether the the frailty scoring should be used as a screening tool or where as a risk stratification tool for in, individuals. Um, the British Geriatric Society says it shouldn't be used as a population screening tool, but what it is being used for is to create pathways for patients, understanding what patient you have in your clinical commissioning group or in your catchment area for your postcode for your um, mm. GP surgery. Um, and then it becomes a bit tricky because then you're caught in two minds about whether you should be using it clinically to then direct a treatment outcome or whether you're using it to know whether you need to change your service or not. Um, and I, that's where we're at at the moment. The, the awareness is there, but we're not necessarily good at doing something about it. Where's the primary awareness sort of, if you, if you were to be able to catch a subset of medical professional, healthcare professional, sorry, more broadly, where do you think the biggest bang for buck is? Is that, is that GPs? Is that therapists? Is that any? Well, I, I would like to think physio is a great opportunity, but I think it's primary care in general. Um, sure. we, we see a lot of people in the emergency department that were referred in because they might have a minor health event. They might be mildly frail, but the clinician that's seen them beforehand, paramedic, specialist nurse, advanced practice physio, whoever it is, doesn't have the time or capacity to go into the complexity of that individual, mm. or they presume it's going to be overly complex. So then they refer them into secondary care. Mm. Um, it's getting better. Certainly where, where I live and where I work, it's getting better. I don't know what the, the, your listeners will probably think of some examples of either they've done it or, or they've sought well, I hope you, advice I, I from hope you your listeners are, because I'm sat here thinking about the amount of, uh, amount of mistakes I've made over, over recent and, of course, a career where we all look back and almost, I've said before on this show, you almost want to pick up the phone and ring patients, apologise for misdemeanors of the past or mistakes or things that you've missed. But in this instance, you, you, your demographics are relevant, aren't they, with regards to what you guys are able to do to get ahead on in Bath, in part because of the um, demographic change as well as some of the some of the affluence that comes with it as well will be relevant with mm. regards to the monetary value to that service and the way that money will be challenged to different age demographics relative to other areas. And, and, and that's something that, but it's important that that then is seen as a blueprint that can be translated and ways that we can scale it up across the country. So upskilling primary care clinicians to in recognition is all well and good. I'm concerned though that with awareness can sometimes mean that that's just another thing that can be punted into services that aren't well established. So imagine that we were suddenly to give a, a set of uh, tens of thousands through this podcast an epiphany into frailty. If they, regardless of their upstream services, were to then make sensible referrals that into your service, you'd be just rubbing your hands and saying, oh my God, it's working. But into services that aren't well equipped, that would overwhelm it and be seen by many of our colleagues has been mismanagement of pathways so there's got to be some sort of uh, middle hasn't there and there's probably some interventions or, or ways in which we can manage that without it just being an automatic referral when the services aren't there to to deal with that capacity yeah it's almost like a public health discussion to be had there because we're, we're at a stage where we're very reactive to it we we deal with it when someone presents with frailty but we don't necessarily have the capacity to deal with it to prevent it sure. um or you know sometimes you think oh yeah i've done a good job here like the, in the exercise group um yeah we've had some really good outcomes and i think yeah we've prevented them from from deteriorating in the near or short term mm. now it's embedding that and preventing it from from um changing in the in the middle term 
but it's a lot of people. The aging population means it's going to be a big problem for secondary care and primary care now, um, let alone the future. Exactly, and one of the one of the fascinating things that we all know that that people you know of all of all, of all political flavours have walked into the issue of, of how social care can be structured and and funded because of this purely on demographics even if you to divorce it from the medical realities of what that means um it's, it's just a fascinating conundrum and certainly not one we're going to solve now but <laughs> but let's let's therefore take a bit of a deep dive into clinical practice what sort of um and, and i think we, we said off mic before about how unfortunately just as a matter of category error to make sure we we, we do get something said we will need to sort of sometimes make some 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 groupings and some and some stereotyping to some extent but how does it present classically in clinical practice and where are we most likely we've said in primary care to see it but what are the sort of examples of uh, clinicians that they'll encounter um i, I think so falls is obviously a, a big one but what we see a lot of is vague symptoms that are masking of a problem so off legs we see that a lot um where someone's just not mobilizing or or as balanced as they were before whatever the referral will say it'll be a vague sweeping statement that's probably masking a more sinister problem or a more longer term problem um uh so yeah off off legs is a really big one newly confused as well very vague mm. symptoms and descriptors like that um uncontrolled pain as well um right. that can be caused by a number of different things um Generally, I'm well. Acopia, yeah. So um, there's these statements which we all cringe when we get these. Acopia, not coping at home, social admission, uh, off legs, um, UTI. Um, they're all masking other problems underlying their new, newly acutely struggling, right. um, or the, their new problems um, because of their frailty. And you know, the, there's always one or two cases that always stick in your mind, right? When you when you reflect back on things yeah. and um off off legs is always the one that really gets me because because i'm a physio because why, the, the, the why so aren't much, they walking around absolutely <laughs> yeah. and sometimes it's it's stuff as horrific as metastatic spinal cord compression and no one's done a neuro exam because they're old or they've only just done a few a few little tests and they think that's yeah. sufficient wow. enough or the the, the arthritis in their knee may be masking their, their true deficit of the strength that they have now and they're not listening to what the the patient's telling them saying no this is new this is a new problem my knee is always like this my legs are always weak and actually it's something much more sinister mm. and that would be my advice is is if there is anything vague statements like that really do a multi-systems review like frailty is a deficit of multiple systems a failure of multiple organs multiple systems in your body you need to examine them to make sure that this isn't impacting on on why they're struggling. Why are they off legs? Is it because they have a chest infection and no one's thought? They just think it's just their painful legs or painful feet or the deformed legs or whatever it could be. Um, the same as the confusion. Have is Are they newly confused because they have an infection, something straightforward like, that, like a delirium? Or have they fallen down recently, um, two or three weeks ago, and they have a chronic subdural? How are you going to decipher between those things or a vascular dimension mm. relevant to other symptoms that they're getting yeah. that could be more vascular in nature which sometimes yeah. gets missed but i mean it's, it's just but you reminded me of other sort of health matters podcasts we've done in this series at alistair beverly um, on um, adult learning disabilities just utter complacency that sometimes sets in mm. when you can just sort of think that 
most of the time, I'd probably get away with it probably just being an old person struggling to stand up. Yeah. And yes, you know, if you want to roll that dice, then sometimes you'll get lucky. But fundamentally, just, just you really knows off. They're not speculative things. They're things that you'll see a yeah. lot. In, and I know that I encounter and we unfortunately get people sending us horror stories that sort of spur them into action on this stuff. And that's a classic example of complacency where people just sort of like just trying to find something to be able to, again, punt it. Yeah. So thoroughness is what you're mm. saying. Yeah. When it comes to MSK outpatients, be that in, in any practice or even in, in sort of uh, uh, more niche into, into private practice, we'd probably end up seeing things that are sort of, you know, post-orthopedic stuff, people come into us with a, 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 your classic post-fall, but they're not necessarily, if we don't always automatically follow up with them, well, how did you fall and stuff like that? And you just sort of narrowly start treating their shoulder or their collis fracture yeah. or whatever it might be. Is that the, am I taking too much of the low-hanging fruit there? Or is that the kind of the more obvious way in which a classic MSK department would come to pick up on some of these sort of pre-frail states that you were talking about before? Yeah, um, the falls is obviously a big one. Um, that's what outpatients for old people is basically thought to be falls and balance clinic, right? Um, but falls falls puts a lot of big people off because it's complicated and involves multiple systems. Um, but I, the, reading the nice guidelines simplifies it a lot for people yeah. because it's talking about how many times you've fallen in the last year describing each event to you and then you can start to really apply your biomechanics and your um, anatomy and physiology to it having something quite broad like a fool and you just draw the line under it it it's yeah it detracts you away you think you've ticked the box but actually to make it more enjoyable for people because people don't necessarily enjoy seeing complicated old people they don't think they necessarily can deal with the intensity of the interventions and things but if you talk through each each episode of falling each um or each time they've fallen sorry um then you can really apply the, what you're good at to it and then you can really think okay they've fallen over they have a new foot drop what could that be or they've fallen over because they've got painful quad what could that be or they have back pain they've got shoulder pain or they've their vision changed what then you can really start to deal with those individual problems but just having in your plan fall not good or in 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 your diagnostic whatever wherever you're writing stuff down mm. if you're just writing a simple fall not good yeah totally with you and i think that, that those follow-up questions are so important that it's not just ticking boxes one of the things with falls frequency when it comes to be numerated that i do get a bit even though i can understand its baseline utility especially if you follow it up like mm. you just have i am concerned that some older people I bet it's similar in Bath and here we are sat in a studio in Cheshire. Right? Mm. It's not going to be dissimilar in terms of some of the demographic things is that you've got an older person that's had three falls, but that's because of the high level in which they're trying to function. So one of mm. those falls was whilst out mountaineering. It is a, it's a different thing. It's like yeah. if I were to recognize, especially with my varied and silly hobbies, you said, I've certainly fallen more than three times this year, but I wouldn't be a falls risk in a classic sense. It's because mm. I was doing challenging things mm. at the upper limit of what my body's capacity mm. is. Do you, is the follow-up questions that we were talking about sufficient to iron yeah. those out or yeah. do we need to sort of... Because sometimes people use those as examples to discredit the measures, which mm. I think sometimes goes a bit far. But I just wonder what mm. your thoughts were on that. Yeah, it, it obviously there's a lot of common sense about it and being guided by them. <coughs> Sorry. 
um, being guided by how severe they think the episode is. A lot of the time when you talk about falls to older people, they won't want to tell you because they think it's going to mean that they're going to become locked in their house. They're not allowed to go out and about anymore. It leads to a reduced confidence. Um, But that's why investigating it in sufficient detail to give you peace of mind but also them peace of mind Um, and and normally it's a multitude of factors sometimes it can be a simple trip or fall or slip but mechanical fall what does that really mean Um, people should be describing the episode of the fall so fall at night time going to the bathroom and that's a lot more meaningful because then you think okay they're going to the loo in the night time how many times are they going to the loo in the night once, twice, probably normal. Five times, what are they doing? Is it something to do with them drinking inappropriately in the evening? Are they falling because they have um, visual deficit now when they're going down the stairs? Or are they falling backwards? And maybe you're starting to think about Parkinson's disease or something more significant in their life. Is it because now they have uh, sarcopenia? Have they now started to not eat as much? So therefore, their muscle mass is deteriorating and their strength is getting down. And is there something we can do about that? And that's why the the investigation is so important because it should naturally direct you where you should be going. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's really really simple. Yeah. Sometimes it's just changing your footwear. Yeah, sure. <laughs> some some for some of the some some patients come in and they've already solved their problems with their footwear, but it's a big one. It's a really big one. There's a the, I saw a, a gentleman a few weeks ago who had rock climbing shoes on. Really? because it gave him that feedback that he needed oh, okay. because he had reduced proprioception in his feet because he had type 2 diabetes um and it just gave him that grip and that confidence right. so he could maintain his independence as yeah. much as possible yeah. um shoelaces as well lock laces for for those um listeners who are triathletes will know what i'm talking about but they're essentially um elasticated laces which you can do with a little button um and they maintain people's independence sometimes it can be really subtle like that sometimes it can be just getting them in the gym getting them doing some squats and deadlifts Mm. to to get their power up and confidence up can be enough it's funny because sometimes that because that that simplicity can hopefully reassure people that this doesn't always have to be that the complexity of the individual doesn't mean the complexity of intervention but then similarly sometimes it's things like that that people use as a means of complacency and dismissal. Like they'll call them slipper and rug clinics and things like that. Yeah. I've known that yeah. that's one of the things that yeah. was a, a sort of throwaway comment about day hospital that was often used oh, when yeah. it came to rotations. But fundamentally, I remember I always used to say that, look, that in amongst it, of course, you're going to have those, but they're just really rich wins. You know, yeah. they're, they're fundamentally, yes, sometimes it is that the threadbare slippers probably weren't the right yeah. thing. And, but generally, in amongst it there's also what you've just described which is that actually the mechanism and the style of fall if we call it that can really give us a clue i don't want to necessarily get us too stuck in the weeds on this question Mm. but i do think it'd be relevant is that what counts with regards to falls you know with regards Mm. to near misses and things Mm. like that yeah because that's where some nuance and common sense is appropriate as Mm. well where you can have a just because someone can have a, a very overt fall that would have counted, but they just happened to then land on the sofa. And they thought, oh, well, it didn't hit the ground. Yeah. It doesn't count, which is stupid. Yeah. Or sometimes the other examples that yeah. I mentioned before, which yeah. shouldn't count that otherwise might do. Where is that line drawn appropriately? Near misses are what really we should be asking a lot about, because if you fall over once, you're, the odds on you're going to fall over again, and then you start falling over again, and then you keep going down this cycle of falling down hurting yourself getting back up low confidence Mm -hmm. less physical activity essentially the same cycle of deconditioning Mm -hmm. and the same cycle of frailty basically you then continue to go down so 
Nim, the, as if you read the nice guidelines, it will tell you to, to talk about um, and to discuss near misses. Um, and quite a lot of the time, I spend a lot of time talking about near misses. And sometimes that will take you down a diagnostic route before they've really like a prodrome of a, of a, of a syndrome like Parkinson's disease. They'll tell you that they're shuffling, they're, they're, they're hunched over, they're starting to bump into things. Um, and it can tell you where you should be thinking and guiding your, your diagnostic reasoning, really. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. What are, what are the relationships between frailty and chronic conditions in general? We've talked about mm. this totting up that sometimes can happen yeah. diagnostically, but there's also, I imagine, going to be overlap across the spectrum of, of different things. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the relationship between multi-morbidity and having lots of a long list of comorbidities, it leads you down the polypharmacy route where they've got lots of drugs, it leads you down the inability to deal with the side effects of some of those treatments and the, yeah. and the, 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 the risks of some of those treatments. But, it will die. What you have to try and work out is what condition is leading to their contributing to their frailty the most. So, for a lot of a lot of patients with respiratory disorders, that's the thing that is leading to their frailty the most. That's the thing that's leading to them not wanting to eat, not wanting to go out, not having the energy to do exercise and intervention, which then the, the sarcopenia starts to set in. You're starting to lose weight. You're starting to lose confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, so respiratory diseases are a big one, same as cardiac mm-hmm. um, yeah. conditions. Um, and that's why broadly targeted interventions like pulmonary rehab- rehabilitation works at preventing someone from deteriorating into frailty because for that individual, that's their biggest contributor to their levels of frailty. Yeah. But it, it's not the same for everyone. One of the things with that then is because as as much as there's a massive and rich complexity in each individual case, and the especially when you get into polypharmacy and multimorbidity, but there are these big ticket items, aren't there, when it comes to treatment that can sometimes be refreshing compared to, it's not as if you need to always get into the weeds on solutions. You can actually then sometimes there's a great utility in graded functional rehabilitation, balance training, hit mm. the large muscle groups, mm. find an accessible and enjoyable environment mm. for them to engage. Yeah. And then potentially there might be some of the intricacies that kind of emerge from the fact that, well, isn't it interesting that it got 60% better, but why are we plateauing at that? And it turns out that some of the more niche interventions or some of the more niche findings on assessment actually are relevant for getting the rest of the building blocks together. Yeah. But others... I suppose I want your opinion as to whether or not what I've just described is the right sort of way of going to like get the hit the big ticket items first, or are you of the school of thought, which of course is super super valid, which I've heard before, which is that actually you need almost like a totting sheet of, of, of the, the complexity of the individual needs to be laid on to the individual complexity of the intervention. It needs to be almost similarly niche mm. and, and, and individualized. Yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking about this on the way here this morning. Right. Um, I, I'm at a bit of a debate in my head about whether I think for some people, absolutely, those big ticket items, that pulmonary rehab, that um, cardiac rehab group, is absolutely appropriate for them to a point, like you said. And then you need to take it down to okay, how are we going to get those extra gains? We need to make an individualized approach, and that's a lot of what geriatrics is: is making that individualized, targeted approach to them. Yeah. And what I would probably use that pulmonary rehab that cardiac rehab for is a pre-training episode so they're doing that they're getting 
to a level of which you can then push them up to the next level, they are ready to exercise at an intense enough level for you to do that one-to-one exercise in the gym or a smaller group setting where it's not circuit-based. Um, it's more it, completely independent to their needs and wants. Um, and most importantly, what it links to their quality of life because goal setting for them is so important. Um, and once they feel better that they've taken part in that cardiac rehab, it's still keeping them on the hook yeah. because they'll just peter out and stop doing everything or yeah. they won't have the confidence to do it. So it's it's about taking it to the next level after that, I would say. I really, it, it makes me upset when I think about some older people going to exercise groups which are very broad, non-specific, sat down in a chair or chair-based or they're doing the same exercises for a decade or or they come and tell you, oh yeah, I really enjoy this exercise. I've been doing it for four or five years. And you think, okay, where's the progression? We've forgotten about our fundamental principles of of exercise prescription um and applying our reasoning of of why we do exercise mm-hmm. um to those patients and and that's what i'd say we we should probably focus more on and there's some really good evidence coming out um now about that um particularly now sports scientists are really driving a lot of that research um because there's big gains to be made if you understand how sarcopenia happens how muscle changes when you get older and and what you can tolerate when you get older you can use that evidence for younger people too and you can really start to transform the the mid mid age um um the middle age transition from from being quite healthy to starting to accumulate those deficits um and or muscle failure which sarcopenia is is quite heavily linked to that at the moment there's quite a lot of of evidence to say mm. you know it helps you with your cholesterol yeah. insulin resistance levels um your mitochondria keeping them active keeping them firing um reducing that fatty infiltrate into your muscle the satellite cells and things you can really help that and then that really protects the rest of your organs as you get older um uh so yeah that's probably what i'd say i kind of rambled off a bit off no it's a, I'm, I'm glad you did because you've really covered lots of bases there because i'm glad that I'm glad that it's something that you're grappling with because I think it's something that you can make a really decent case for both in many ways. Mm-hmm. Like a, I think it's one of them where pragmatically the system doesn't necessarily suit this, well, identify it. Yeah, I think in an ideal world you can make a case for someone having mm-hmm. then a, a, a very involved life coach that can then break that through. And by life coach, I mean of a therapist persuasion, we would make a case for, of course, but someone well qualified to then help identify not just the big ticket items, but also the, all the jigsaw pieces. However, on the, in the system as it exists, we probably do need to be a bit more utilitarian about it and think what are the big ticket things that we can try and yeah, do. And, and that might reveal, might solve more than we, we, we ever thought. Mm. And that's, um, revisiting revisiting the uh, blood pressure meds to, to take a stereotype there might be of of less need once they've actually re-engaged with exercise of course yeah. but fundamentally it might also be that that is um the limiting factor for them you know the the, the, the postural blood pressure is the thing that sort of stops them really hitting a dosage of exercise yeah. that's yeah. any good and then we're, we're, we're revisiting it so I, i'm on that fence as well i think it's it's a funny one because in a, in a utopian system i bet we'd all be far more individualized from scratch mm. in the current system it's a massive swing in the right yeah. direction if we were to make sure that there's a recognition of it mm. start to almost identify where the priorities are in terms of timing as well as we keep mm. saying big ticket in terms of the how much gain they could get from an intervention i think um i do wonder with regards to 
you've said there about it's another type of complacency where there's been a recognition there's someone that's engaging within an exercise group for example but yeah they're still doing hip flexion in sitting style chair based marching in a community group which is better than them not doing anything Mm -hmm. of course it is and the social environment of them doing it still all those enriching factors Um, but then there is a that complacency word comes back in where they've then just been flatline dosed on that Um, what are the what, what what do you think is the the way that we change minds to to progress that i i think i think there's a lot of sub therapeutic intervention for exercise for a number of reasons um one is fear in this patient group you're worried that they're going to fall down you're worried that they're going to break their hip you're worried their heart's going to suddenly stop when you do an exercise with them but the, the so they've done research into this uh into how many bad outcomes there are um, when you do exercise with patients who have heart failure with with lung problems and it, let's say for a clinician in their career will see half a million contacts it will take three careers worth of people to see someone die from exercise in front of them so it's one harm event in 1.5 million contacts so i hope that gives people confidence to think actually they're probably not going to drop dead in front of me Mm. And the the long term gains are worth that short term increase in risk, um, because you, you, the next time they do exercise, there'll be a slightly less risk. I want to be I wanted to be more reassured by those numbers than I am being. So let me if it's phrased a different way, mm. which is that so one in three of us in a career's worth of interventions, if we were to exercise people within these conditions, is going to experience a. Uh, a, yeah, a, a serious, serious event cardiac event. Like that, yeah. right? So when it's framed that way out, it sort of starts to feel. Now I'm one that certainly feels that we're underdosing and, and mm. that we need to stop. You know, but we need to perceive all bodies to be more robust, yeah. especially elderly bodies. So I'm not trying to derail that, mm. but I am also meaning that those numbers aren't so reassuring that it's such an incredibly low risk of uh, low chance event that we mm. could probably not give detailed thought mm. to mm. things like dosage appropriateness, mm. safety, flags, that sort of stuff. So it ends up being a, a stat that sort of helps us and reassures us from it being as if this is going to be every other week and therefore yeah. we need to err on the side of caution all the time. But it's also a stat that I think probably makes us realise that there's a good case for expertise being uh, there being an expertise-based overlay there. This isn't mm. something that we should just be... Um, suggesting that people with heart failure can therefore go marching into any mm. a, a, any hit class yeah you know, it's something that, yeah. that really i think it's probably a stat that would be worth us waving as therapists for both fronts really is that it, it's it's low risk enough for us to probably mm. be able to still do yeah. but also it's high risk enough for it to probably still benefit from a professional overlay yeah it is it's it's interesting then thinking about so who gives you clearance to do exercise when you're old <laughs> who, who is it is it is it do you get a note from your son or daughter or do you go to your gp or do you go to your geriatrician or is it physios okay to say yeah let's do exercise i suspect there's probably a combination of of things there the gp will probably say well you're a physio you know what exercise they're doing you'll you're the one to judge but then of course they have heart failure they're on diuretics they're on a calcium channel blocker they're on a beta blocker and you go but what's the effect of this Mm. what's the limitation on their exercise does it mean that they're going to pass out from postural hypertension what do i do to mitigate those risks um and what i'd say to people is if they're on any cardiac medicines particularly um 
drugs that reduce your blood pressure, that, that reduce that peripheral resistance. You probably need a bit more rest in between those settings, particularly at the end of the exercise, because all the blood, when they stop exercising, you've had a dilation effect on the blood vessels. Their drugs having a dilation effect on their blood vessels. So they're more likely to suddenly have a, a, a lower blood pressure after the exercise. Mm-hmm. It's about having plenty of water stations. Um, uh, evidence says that 250 to 300 milliliters of water is about as effective as, as medicines at reducing that um, postural hypertension effect when you stand up after you've been prolonged sitting on a bike, say, or mm. you sat down doing some um, shoulder press or something. Right. Um, so it's about having those mitigating factors in there as well. Yeah, no, that's useful to know. It always amuses me that uh, people, this, this people out there that would never dream of having a set of athletes not cool down. Yet they were, when fundamentally yeah. a well athlete's not cooling down, it says there's like very little evidence to suggest yeah. that that's particularly yeah. essential. Yeah. Whereas within that patient group, they'd probably just say, right, time for a cup of tea yeah. and just stop abruptly yeah. when naturally the evidence is pointing in the opposite direction. And that's the, the important client set to, to use it with. So now I'm totally with you there. Um, when, when you've, when you're mentioning some of the, um, s- some of the specific examples you've been able to give there, I imagine speaks to some of your advanced practice experience and as a, as a prescribing therapist as well, I imagine that gives you that, that uh, sort of enriches your reasoning in that direction. Are there any sort of top tips you can therefore give us on that, not dissimilar to what you've just given, mm-hmm. about what it might mean for, let's say, MSK advanced practitioners that are therefore doing something that would be reasonably considered triage um, and what they might be able to pick up on um, that, that might just, you know, those, those little reasoning nuggets that we might otherwise be not considering. Mm. In terms of what you do you mean? It can be anything really. I mean, your, your chronic yeah. example was such a good one. Yeah. I just wondered if you had any other, yeah. you could, I'll pause for a sec to try and think of a couple, yeah. but I wonder if you've got... Postural hypertension, bone protection, no good ones. Yeah. yeah, so I think bone protections are really... If, as physios, orthopedics is in our blood, <laughs> same as musculoskeletal practice, right? Um, bone protection is a really big thing in older people, um, reducing those harm events, particularly if you, you know, they're going to do exercise and you think, uh, really worried about them falling over when they do an exercise or when they do these exercises at home. Um, there's a few tools I'd recommend if they haven't already been screened for osteoporosis. There's a, a tool called FRAX or key fracture. FRAX is from, um, the National Osteoporosis um, Group. Um, they are based at Sheffield. They've done a lot of work on on stratifying someone's risk. Basically, it's a questionnaire of things that you all already know about your your patients. Stuff like height, weight, whether they smoke, whether they drink alcohol, whether they have rheumatoid arthritis, whether they take steroids, um, and then it basically gives you a, a score at the end that will either tell you to give them a lifestyle advice, refer them to have DEXA scan or imaging to, to see whether they, they actually have osteoporosis or not, or just treat them for osteoporosis regardless, because the, the, the risk isn't, is enough. Um, and, uh, for those that work in first contact roles or advanced practice, it's a really big one to, to be doing things like that, to be starting them on calcium if their calcium's normal, of course, or if they don't have any bowel problems, um, and vitamin D. Um, and making sure that their phosphate and vitamin D levels are okay mm. because they're so inter- interlinked with their bone density. But it's really 
interesting where the so strong steady straights a new guideline from the royal osteoporosis group um is heavily based on evidence from australia from about three years ago mm-hmm. um so if anyone's really interested in this stuff look at some of the research group in australia that's going on about bone densities mm-hmm. um and and what exercise can do to improve that because we don't actually know how much bone density can be gained from exercise if it's dosed at the appropriate level with with multiplanar exercise with a balance element and an educational element but it's about as effective as calcium Um, so calcium supplementation will increase your bone density by about one standard deviation and that's about the same as exercise um, which is quite interesting Mm. um I don't know how interesting people will find that. <laughs> no, I think yeah. you'd be surprised, especially on this show. But I think um, you mentioned sarcopenia earlier, and um, and a lot is said about bone density, but also, of course, muscular preservation in older people, super important thing, and also something very physio-y, mm. <laughs> to use a word you used earlier, which I like. So what, what's the, what's the uh, big bang for his book on that, and what would you like our listeners to take uh, an understanding from it? Um, I think one of the most important things is advising patients on how much protein they should be taking to preserve um, their muscle mass, but also put muscle mass on. And there's quite a lot of research in, you know, you always hear about how much bodybuilders protein should be eating um, and the difference in what the Public Health England advice is and what the latest, you know, there's a lot of research in nutrition about this at the moment. Um, and in essence, somewhere between 1.8 and 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight should be where we're at. Um, the actual official evidence, uh, the f- official guideline is much less than that. It's about half a gram to 0.8. And the, then there's more um, evidence which is saying about 1.2 to 1.5. But the latest stuff is saying, no, it should be much higher than that. You're not really going to get any negative outcomes of this. It should just be something which we should be promoting. It will promote that calorie intake anyway, but to preserve their muscle, it should be somewhere around that 1.8 to, to 2.2 grams per kilogram. Yeah, a bit of, from, from what I'd understood, having read into it a little bit, it's been a while, admittedly, but when I remember finding that it's an easy way of decreasing the quibbles around carbohydrate and things like that, the big carb fat content thing is that if you use protein as the key macronutrient the other stuff matters less if you get that right you're not shy from controversy though are you because fundamentally one of the easiest ways to do that just weigh in on the sort of dietary veganism type conversation um do you see with working with older people do you see it as being um not just feasible but but realistic for Mm. a large portion of the elderly population to be able to get enough dietary protein from Mm. non-animal products um there's quite a lot of supplements that which are like associated with being old, which you can give them. It's quite easy. They've, the, the, the companies have worked on quite like small milkshake type, type drinks with a huge amount of, of, um, protein content in them. Um, so it's, it's, it's easy for them because it's subsidized as well for them. So those, mm. they don't need to contribute a lot of money mm. to, to get in the supplements. But, um, no, I'd always recommend them to, to maybe not get to those dizzying heights of two grams per kilogram but just go as much as they can from a variety of sources um and that helps with their with it getting their vitamins and, and minerals in as well mm. um uh so yeah another big ticket item definitely from what mm. we've talked about with regards mm. to functional graded exposure style exercise yeah. we've talked about balance yeah. we've talked about but if you can get the protein up um, yeah that's one of those things that could probably make a big difference to multi-morbidity mm. and the, the older people do need more protein 
to they, they absorb the, the the protein less effectively so they need more in their diet anyway so if you aim high you're at least going to hit those minimum levels that you should be getting yeah um then less efficient at converting that protein um into muscle um protein anyway so yeah, yeah aiming high is is well worth it what what i wonder about is when patients present that are for whatever reason and in this instance let's say a musculoskeletal pain or at least by this point mm. they are perceiving it to be musculoskeletal mm. pain but we could even consider people that have got masquerading factors but they're presenting it classically in msk as an older person and they for whatever reason are doing far less weight-bearing exercise or acti- activity more generally um they are increasingly off legs uh, to mm. swear at you yeah, <laughs> but yeah. i think in those instances, I think we all kind of can, we're reasoning with a variable of increased osteoporotic risk. Probably not then going through the process of trying to enumerate that or, or using appropriately validated outcome measure for it. But in circumstances like that, is there a good case to make when, this, when someone's sort of ringing that alarm bell subjectively for you, would we need to be going through a process of investigating and imaging and the things like that and if so what because i'm just thinking what it's one of them moments where i fear um an equivalent to someone presenting with rotator cuff pathology sort of an over medicalizing would be to say x-ray ultrasound so that you can have a blood test as well because we can you know whatever it might be and then there's almost these these little hat trick tests that sometimes people do and i think with in circumstances like that it's just like right let's get get some get some blood work put you on vid d anyway and do a do a DEXA, sodic make it full body. I'm just trying to think. I want to mm. be more specific than that. Unless you're just going to suggest that actually that scatter gun is the right way. Actually, um, yeah, interesting. Um, I think that people should be having a lower threshold for suspicion of the more weird and wonderful things. Right. But it needs to be pragmatic, and okay. there needs to be a, a decision that that's made. Is if we do investigate this, what are we actually going to do about it? Okay. Can we do something about it? Do they actually want something done about it? Do we need to bring in the the GP? Do we need to talk to a geriatrician? Do we need to talk to their family? Who do we need to get advice from to do something about this? Mm-hmm. Um, the, obviously, the risks for scanning an older person are less because they have less life to live um, after they've had the radiation. Yeah. Um, so if you are really suspicious of, of uh, you know, they've got a weird, stiff, painful shoulder and not actually quite sure what's wrong with it, then I don't think it's unreasonable to do an X-ray. Um, but you need a, you do need a, a justification and a reason, not just because you don't know what's going on. Um, it should still fit in with with a clinical picture in your head. Yeah. That can be difficult when they've had those other comorbidities like chest. Is it chest pain? Is it um, metastatic cancer? Is it um, just an ache and a pain? Is it right. is it, uh, oh, sure. uh, uh, have they fallen down? And they haven't told me, and do they have a fracture? Mm. Um, they're the kind of things that always go through my head. Yeah, you want to be able to justify each each. Uh, diagnostic tool or intervention yeah. individually as, as rather than it just being like right you've met my threshold for yeah. concern therefore yeah. all of the above yeah no i, I like that, that it, sounds it, smart. using a specific example that i always struggle i always struggle with the ottawa knee rules right. for knee pain in anyone over i think it's 65 needs an x-ray i really struggle with that because it does reinforce a behavior but at the same time it's there because there's evidence to say that if you do x-ray someone in this age group, you may well find something um, a bit weird and unusual because of the pain. So it's a difficult one. I don't, I 
definitely don't have the answer. And one of the reasons why they, they justify that logic as well in that instance is because it's a group that is can go many but far too long being dismissed as ONE. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. People who've got like yeah. lower yeah. lower third yeah. femoral pain yeah. that yeah. are being dismissed as ONE yeah. and stuff and it just drives me crazy. So I think I they, they have heard yeah. on the side of caution for that. That'll be reasons you've talked about. Yeah, absolutely that's one top tip. Don't just think it's OA. <laughs> just, don't, don't, just don't think it's OA all the time because it isn't a lot of the time it's not OA they don't have any of the risk factors they didn't do any weird manual job to get a shoulder OA hmm. they weren't using a jackhammer for most of their life or anything they, 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 it may well be something a bit unusual um, and because that older older frailer people have quite a, a, an underlying inflammatory burden you should be thinking about is this some underlying rheumatological problem that's starting to manifest now. Mm-hmm. Um, things like pseudo gout often go un- go missed yeah. um, for a long time um, because of because of it just being osteoarthritis. When actually the p- management of those two things are very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I would recommend that people in diagnostic roles had a good understanding of um, of uh, rheumatological problems in that age group. I think when I when we uh, understand the complacency that we keep kind of coming back to and also i think hopefully people are listening and understanding we're almost sympathetic to the temptation to be complacent sometimes is that people don't get like that when it comes to pediatrics when they're presenting msk stuff people just allow themselves this extra layer of protective reasoning because they're surprised to see someone with musculoskeletal pain at that age unless there's a really overt traumatic reason for it so they naturally will start thinking about appropriately about osteosarcoma and stuff they need to use that logic better in older people don't they i'm pleased to see you nodding because i just think that that's where we can almost use that as an easy in. We're not having to sort of reframe someone's reasoning mechanisms. It's just sort of apply the same logic because of the propensity. And especially when it comes to the likelihood, when you look at the numbers, you think sensibly statistically about it. The cancer risk in the elderly for various reasons is far higher. Yeah, but you, you, I'm not saying don't do that for paediatrics. It's great that you are. But just apply some of those same sort of heuristics and then we'll, that would be more protective. Because like you've said, always a classic dismissed one but the amount of um when i was in um more classically in nhs advanced practice there's just people you know 70 some person with without any particular um reason or repetitive task needs that then rotate a cuff tendinopathy with history of breast or lung cancer or something like that where you're just describing things that it's like well if anything you know, there's enough of a history here that may, might mean that we need to be more protective and, and certainly not go for the most common MSK mm. diagnosis just mm. as a matter of safety net. It's rubbish. So I hope that that can, you know, th- not that this podcast is, is because we've got such enlightened listeners, you see, Scott, so you can yeah. imagine that unfortunately we're preaching to the converted to some extent on this, but mm. more broadly, we can hopefully use quick wins like that to try and scale people's thinking. Um, when it comes to, so we've, we've hit a, a couple of great examples there for advanced practice practice and the sort of fcp roles which are, are going to be increasingly emerging uh, are there any other things that you feel makes it slightly different in those sorts of roles and especially when it comes to those um you know when it comes to i've been over i'm already thinking nervously about how we'd interpret some of the blood work that comes from from these sort of pharma polypharma multimorbidity type patients admittedly those mm-hmm. are the things where we're at at the box at the top of, of my thinking you're in an MDT. For folk that aren't, what what, what are your sort of top tips in and around those sorts of bits? I think if ever you've got any any weird thing that you don't know what's going on or suspicion that you can't reason through, get on the phone to your friendly neighbourhood geriatrician and they'll 
always be happy to talk to you about it on the phone. Mm. Um, and I, I think, yeah, I, I, it's a difficult one. It, it, it just depends on what you're looking for, I think. Mm. People can have very deranged bloods and be very normal. Um, we see a lot of patients with a, a kind of a grumbly low sodium for some reason. And it could be that they've started on a new medicine recently or their, their diuretic is, isn't is too high or, or, yeah. or something like that. Um, I, I would always say um, keep an eye out for some anemia. Um, definitely be checking for anemia and their um, MCV to, to then think about first line treatment of, of whether they need some um iron or, or folate or, or something like that because that can help boost their physical performance and again stop that progressive deterioration of of, um, of uh, immobility and muscle wasting etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's, it's interesting because because of the way FCPs are going should they then be dealing with that or should they be referring back to the GP because they it's could well likely they could likely present at physio because they've been triaged that way because they're feeling a bit tired, mm-hmm. and you can see. So should that be something that physio should be doing, or should it, should they talk to the to the GP about it? Mm. I'm not sure what you think about that. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I know that I know that these are the sorts of conversations that we we need to have in in future podcasts, and mm. I might even just get you straight back on the hook for something like that where mm. you're exactly the sort of person I'd love to think this through with, potentially yeah. with others in the yeah. room where. Um, you know, it's going to be a large portion of FCP um, MSK is mm. going to be older people because yeah. of the nature of who attends yeah. general practice. Yeah, I think a lot's been. Uh, we're assuming more of an MSK skill set is compatible, and mm. probably not respecting some of these variables that yeah. I think actually could be that 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 patient is going to be better served by mm. a, by such a generalist medic, mm. and yeah. therefore we might actually be more of a gap. Whereas when yeah. we think of a classic MSK pathology, yeah. you can make a case really for yeah, the yeah. MSK physio being a better person to see him than a GP. But in these mm. sorts of cases, yeah. I'm not so sure. Uh, whereas, again, if we could we could uh, clone you, then that would be a different <laughs> case. Or if we can get some of your skill set into those FCPs somehow, um, which I know hopefully is, is part of the HEE's agenda, then yeah. that's that's great. But I'm... I'm I'm sitting a bit twitchy on that myself. I think it's a funny, a funny balance where I don't think they should be. I think they're playing with fire if they try to micromanage that circumstance. Yeah, I completely agree. With you. Sending to GP, absolutely. Which, and I don't care if that politically undermines that role yeah. for now. I mean, you know, because yeah. the patient safety is at the paramount. Whereas I think there's going to probably be some mistakes get made mm. where they think. Oh, I don't want to do that because last week I sent one back to Dr. Brown and he was a bit annoyed because I'm meant to be doing some, I'm meant to be doing a different role. Yeah. I think there's going to be some mismanagement that goes mm. on because of the politics, which is just a nonsense yeah. to me because patient safety should be at the heart. And I, I guess I'm thinking from a point of view where in the, you, you're right, you, you've got the MDT there, you're in the emergency department, you've got time, you've got the results in front of you right now, you don't need to chase anything up over the phone. It's all very convenient for me, very easy to say these <laughs> things. But when you're out there on your own with 15, 20 minutes or whatever, you've got to deal with these complex patients. Yeah, I think I'd probably be um, GP. One of the big things as well is that you've, you've just reminded me of is that it's you're only as good as the thing you're comparing yourself to with regards to diagnostics, especially chest X-ray and mm. especially blood work, right? Yeah. It's, it's only as good as your last one, really. You, you can do it from baseline, and, but you're, you're going off values that might be normal for them. Yeah, yeah. And in 
in A&E or even in minor injuries or something, this secondary care is just better at joining up their systems so that you've at least got, even if it's a couple of years old, it's still better than nothing to compare yeah, to. Absolutely. And unfortunately in primary care, um, that is so it fails to be joined up in, in tech and in, mm. and in referral streams and, and sometimes just even just paper mm. systems that still mm. exist in a lot of MSK departments mm. mean that you're getting some blood work through that was appropriate to ask for. But at the same time, if the mechanism was there, it'd be then put alongside that person's blood work. Uh, yeah. and, and sometimes that isn't the case. So you, you know, that's one of the big things I worry about is that and why I do think there's a good case for the person that knows that that circumstance best, even if that happens to be GP under a more traditional role, would probably mm-hmm. still be more appropriate than um, a plucky MSK professional trying to sort yeah, of micromanage yeah. that yeah. circumstance diagnostically yeah. mm-hmm. and potentially over-representing yeah. the differences in the blood work relative mm-hmm. to normal values yeah. when actually it's normal mm-hmm. for them. It's mm-hmm. such a such a messy one. And if you join the systems up digitally and tech-wise, then that does solve a lot of that problem. Yeah. But that's a long way to go. And, uh, you know, we've been, we've been talking about this for five, ten minutes now or whatever it's been and I think just as we've been talking what's the biggest bang for buck here obviously I'm talking from quite a a niche specialist view compared to a lot of the listeners and I think do they need to be paying attention to those specific details about what you do in each situation probably not need to be aware of it and think "Mm, this looks unusual I need some help the best bang for buck comparing let's say the blood work and the interpreting the imaging and things versus the other physio bits they should just be focusing on the extra physio bits and if they want to start adding stuff on from a frailty point of view from a geriatric point of view it's focusing on that social support that they can do to to prevent that deterioration of their frailty those people becoming socially isolated will probably have more of an impact for them with their patients than thinking about those tiny little dot on the i's and crossing the t's that that i enjoy looking at as as i do and that's why you're right we, we get sucked yeah. in because these are the edge cases yeah. aren't they that make for really interesting things as people construct policy but mm. actually yeah when it comes to the the big wins for our audience is that yeah you want to be thinking about at least awareness for first and foremost hit the big ticket items as we talked about before yeah. engage someone uh, without without being excessively cautious into a, a graded rehabilitation program mm. understand your local services as to where to engage them in yeah. in some of those things but when it comes to what i would would say is instead of um expecting our audience to get into the weeds as we just had because we're yeah. nerds <laughs> is i would say though is that i would want them as our listeners and broadly speaking the community to understand and go into bat for people like you when you make a case mm. for what we've just talked about that is mm. being overlooked yeah when people start to think about looking at the demographics in in general practice and looking at what that might be as to what fcp is going to look like on a on a on a typical list you know there's mm-hmm. been talk of people trying to make these typical lists or using them as as a tra- as a training priority thing is that it's probably not going to be your threshold for the mr in a, in a sporty person, which of course we want you to be good at. Mm. But actually, if you think about what's going to be the tally of people that you see, it's these things like that that you should at least be thinking about setting up systems and processes for mm. um, as, as, as quickly as you do your ACL mm. um, guidance yeah. for, for MRs. And, and, and I've seen you and, and, and Janet Thomas and others sort of make good noises in that direction um, as these things get constructed. And I fear that there's almost this luxury, these these luxury stereotypical MSK cases. That whilst it's good that they're being talked about, they're not actually going to be a lot of what um, 
there's not going to be that glamour in those roles. Um, and instead, if we get the systems right, so um, I'd like our, our listeners and beyond to really think about what we've talked about, not necessarily because you're going to be as nerdy as us getting into the details of trying to solve them, I suppose, but at least be respectful of the fact that that's, an under, I think, an undershared part of that conversation around mm. FCP and, uh, and, and to get, get behind you and others when you're going into bat for, for making the case. Because I think it's an advocacy thing, not just for the patients that you mm. serve, but also for, for your wing of not just the profession, but the industry. Um, I think it's such a, we will all suffer if, if you don't get heard now mm. because they'll set up systems that yeah. are hard to unpick and then mm. have to keep talking about reform mm. over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is one of, one of the things that excites me about what you're doing is if we get it right, we won't yeah. need to reform it. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm thinking. But no, it's a, it's a good point and we won't go too far down that rabbit hole because I, I bet there's two or three other podcasts uh, later in the year we could probably think about with regards to construction uh, around FCP that we're planning as well, which would be cool. One thing I wanted to ask you then to start to bring it towards home is when you look at the wider system mm. as you work within it, do you feel that there's a particular part of it that you feel is not serving your patients uh, and, and, and even the therapists that are trying to serve the patients, you know, people in your shoes? Um, and, and what would you go, how would you go about improving it? I think when I think of my inpatient colleagues, um, what are their biggest frustrations? Um, and it's being bogged down in the discharge planning. I think that's the, the big one. I think a lot of your listeners probably get when they think back earlier in their career when they were working on the wards yeah. they're thinking oh older older people's units just discharge planning and I, I think that's where we're let down is because it's so overly complicated and convoluted sometimes um that we get bogged down in it and then forget about this cool stuff we've been talking about with the <laughs> with the extra weird and wonderful things and yeah. thinking about that diagnostic reasoning yeah. thinking about um thinking about for the most of the listeners, what they would be interested in thinking about where we are going in the future is having that extra time to delve into this complexity. I think, um, being able to identify when there is something like someone's socially isolated, knowing exactly what to do to solve that problem now, quick and easy, right? Here's an, here's a name and number for you to call. That would be really, really useful. Quite not that physio-y, but really high impact high meaning for that yeah. patient and then once they see you do something really positive for them they're more likely to come back they're more likely to want to commit to doing some exercise they're more likely to come back and talk to you about any problems because um, that can be quite difficult well i don't feel like that answers your question properly no i think it does i think it's, it's it's there i mean if you feel free to add others to it it's just that if when i when i ask for what do you feel is the part of the system and that's what's, what's tip of your tongue then definitely i imagine that's that's relevant yeah. that that's what you get to first um i, I think a lot of it is i, I think i don't think they're gonna be wanting to listen to political arguments for um uh health secretaries not integrating health and social care together because when when people are frail they're frail for a very long time and they transverse those two health and social aspects mm. and if i if i had a magic wand to solve one thing it will be joint up funding between health and social care sure. and not being completely separate between transitioning between those two services yeah. because these patients need someone to pragmatically be at the center of their care and invite other people to join in and, yeah. and work as part of an MDT. Usually it's geriatricians, which are in the center, making those, those high level pragmatic decisions and, and getting advice from other professionals. Yeah. And then once you 
once you then transition to social care, it starts to break down in a funny way where you have um, institutional homes that that really don't take that role anymore of that central person who's looking after their residents. It can still be people doing it from afar, but it's even more disgen- disjointed because they're further away from that individual than they were before. Yeah, um, And that's a really difficult problem to solve. Um, I think we get, it's funny because we... we when something like this comes up, we get we hear from listeners that are that thank us for for at least erring towards or, or just floating the fact that these things do naturally become political, and then other listeners mm. that are just like for God's sake, yeah, politics, yeah. you know, because it's, it's, it's toxic. And, and but in, in this instance, it's incredibly difficult to divorce it from its politics because of the way in which, as soon as you pay attention to these issues, mm. you don't have to be that way inclined to recognise. There's a sociological complexity to differences in family dynamics with people being drawn out further. There's differences in social fabric with regards mm. to even you know, people sometimes point to um, changes in the way that religious institutions work around parish councils and mm. funding that used to exist there. And people, some, depending on their persuasion, want to hark back to that or suggest that the fact that that hasn't been then economically replaced um, that the social fabric shouldn't be stepping in there. It's, just, it's it's messy. It's political, and in circumstances such as this, interestingly and unfortunately, probably for us to not end up having to go into too mm. much debate on it, is that with regards to the joining it up and stuff, it's certainly a policy that I can see as being the only positive way forward. Now, the practical, real politic of it is it's incredibly fraught with challenges with mm. regards to just the system. But if mm. in a, yeah, in a utopian sense as to what would it be, looking on at the challenges we face, is if you fail to join that up sooner rather than later, then we're, we're, <coughs> there, are, there isn't really a solution that can be found on the broad sense because you can't solve the uh, the the fact that it's n- messy... Um, social care stuff and it takes a long time to sort of discharge plan is that as soon as you look at how to solve that you can't good luck trying to not be political to some extent at least on a small p for your systems and your what your trust's policy is etc um so i do i do think it's uh it's a messy one and definitely one that probably will and we love the fact that this is something we can probably float and hopefully the the, the listeners will get back to us as to what their take on the matter is and especially with us potentially being in quite significant agreement on that i'd love to hear from if you're hearing this and frustrated that we're not representing a good argument for separation between health and social care please let us know because i'm sure we'd love to hear it because admittedly i'd struggle to strongman that case i think really um on on this with regards to, to to bring it to a close on on where people can find out more about you and some of the things that some of the work that you do, as well as potentially support, especially because this latter part, I've sort of talked a bit about where I'd hope that people would support you and those like you making the case for for this corner of, of work. Where would people best best get in touch? Uh, Twitter's always a good place. Right. Um, do I say my handle? Or the handle, yeah. yeah. Um, Plug the handle. So it's just S-C-O-T-T-B-U-X-T-O-N underscore one. I don't know who the other person is with my same name, but yeah, the that's... Real Scott uh, Buxton, yeah. please stand up. Okay, no, that's, that's Scott the, Buxton underscore one on the Twitter. Place. That'd yeah. be easy for people to sort of find you as well as, as share their thoughts <clears> and thanks for this, as well as to challenge him. I know the man likes to challenge and he loves, uh, as, as he's proven by the area that he's gone <laughs> into. So please do get in touch with him. Also, 
with, you know, let's, you, you work for Physiopedia and a feed yeah. into Physiopedia Plus, which mm. is also the premium content, which is fantastic. Also has a brilliant app now as well. So yeah. uh, people sometimes get their minds blown when they encounter Physiopedia for the first time. So if you haven't heard of it or haven't delved into that world, then do so. Anything more you want to say on that? Uh, no, um, I think Rachel Lowe's been um, wanting to uh, talk to you on here for a while, so sure. maybe that's one for the future. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the Rachel, Rachel and Tony do do brilliant work, and certainly it's a it's a crime that I've not had them on the show. And so certainly, Rachel, if you're listening, especially if you're going to be in the northwest of England anytime <laughs> soon, please do drop in. But if not, then we'll get get on the get on the Skype soon to talk about a lot of the work they're doing. So absolutely. <laughs> So thank you so much for coming in, Scott, and, and joining me in the studio. It's been thank a you. fascinating conversation that's probably only meant my cogs are turning so much now. I've already got two, three plus podcasts now uh, I'm thinking of. Um, but um, especially keep up the great work that you're doing um, and, and also the way that you're kindly marrying it in to MSK and to, and to speak into that large subset of, of, of physios that, that de- definitely uh, need to make sure they keep thinking in this direction. And we're very fortunate in many ways that you keep your hand into our, our area, but you've specialised in somewhere that we, we need our socks pulling up on. So thank you so much for all that you're doing. No, thank you for having me. And yeah. You keep up the good work too, Cheers, I'm bro. sure. Thanks a lot. People probably don't say that enough to you, do they? <laughs> no. no, I just get heckled. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, that's really nice. Cheers, mate. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Again, another podcast I'm going to have to listen to a few times. I feel very lucky that I get to edit these things and as part of my role here, get to listen through a couple of times because that saves me a little bit of difficulty later on, but I'll still be putting this one through on the next car journey. Don't forget, if you head to choosehealth.co.uk forward slash blog and you'll be able to click on this episode uh, blog link and that will bring up the description of the podcast. There you can subscribe to the newsletter which our dear friend Felicity Thau puts out every month and that'll have the links that you need with the things that Scott mentioned for uh, screening these patients. So the FRAX tool for example we'll put a link to there um, and make sure you subscribe to that newsletter to get that every month including the Google Drive which has the resources in it that Felicity collates every month. What a resource that is and so many papers and information in there going back through the now 76 episodes plus bonuses. So make sure you check that out. We have a lot of projects in the pipeline. Uh, Given the time scale I'm recording this today and hopefully these things will be out by now, but we are producing some COVID-19 guidance podcasts uh, that should help you to manage if you're an MSK therapist and you might be being drafted into doing some uh, respiratory work or at least helping offload different burdens from our respiratory colleagues, then please check those out. Uh, They will inevitably be on our Twitter and Facebook feeds and YouTube. So check out all of our social media feeds. Don't forget, if you don't already subscribe to the podcast uh, so that you get the notifications of when new podcasts are released, um, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, all of the Android apps. And of course, uh, you can find it in the browser at the blog post I mentioned before, choosehealth.co.uk forward slash blog. Although we will be hopefully releasing a Physiomatters dedicated webpage soon. So keep an eye out for that as well. Further projects in the t- in the pipeline, keep a looking out for those. Make sure you subscribe to all of our social media feeds to get the maximum level of information you can and make the most out of our CPD projects that we create. So find us on Twitter at TPM Podcast, Facebook, 
the Physio Matters podcast. Um, Instagram, YouTube, you name it, we're on it. Go find us, subscribe there, follow us along, get in touch. We're always keen to hear from you as listeners. We want to know what topics you want, what guests you want, and just let us know. We try to manage that as best we can. So we will see you soon for the next episode, and um, I will be there doing the introduction. Luckily, Jack remembered to record the outro with Scott this time, so you don't have to listen to me do it, and it's a very good one as per usual. So I will see you next time. You've been listening to the Physio Matters podcast discussing Physio Matters because Physio Matters. <laughs> Brilliant.